are privileged to have a, a guest minister who's really going to be speaking into the life of the church here. And I, I think that it's great timing for us as we talk about the foundations of what God is building his New Testament church on and what that looks like for us here at South Suburban. And so Wayne Crace has uh, been one of the most influential men in my life in shaping ministry, but also just in my life personal, personally. Uh, Wayne has pastored churches. He has interimed at churches. He has consulted for churches. And he has also raised up ministers for churches as he served as the president of Vanguard University in uh, Southern California. And so I'm going to pray over Wayne as he comes this morning, and then I'd like you guys to give him a great welcome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great time of worship today. And Lord, now as we turn um, our words into our ears, we listen now to your words, God. We pray your blessing and your anointing upon Wayne as he delivers your word this morning. In your name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Would you guys welcome Dr. Wayne Crace this morning? Well, good morning, saints. Good morning to the rest of you, too. <laughs> Maybe you uh, <clears throat> just don't quite feel like a saint this morning. I've had days like that. And... Uh, Maybe you're not quite sure you fit in. Maybe you're here for the first time. You say, well, what's this church all about? Well, we're family. <clears throat> and we're going to, <clears throat> when the pastor asked me to speak, and he, he said, I'd kind of like you to talk a little bit, maybe unpack this idea a little bit about being family. And the family is important. The prayer that uh, is the best known prayer in all of Christendom, is referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And I thought of it immediately when the pastor asked me to come, and I thought, there's my text. Notice the first two words of this prayer. And we've been singing these words. Our Father. Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, when you pray, now this was earth shaking for them. They lived in a culture where there were priests and then there were people. And the priests somehow were believed to have had special access to God. And the rest had to go through the priest in order to get to God. But Jesus was revolutionizing all of that, and he said, when you pray, say, our Father. He didn't say, Father. He didn't say, your Father. He said, our Father. And those two words together are dynamite, because what they say is that we have a connection with each other through the very same Father. So look at the person next to you and say, hi, cousin. <laughs> we are all related. And I think that we sometimes struggle with that. And we even struggle with it because it's easier to think that I might have some kind of a connection with the people that I worship with. Well, what about the people out there on the street? 
Do they have the same father that I have? Yes, they do. That means they're your brother and your sister. We in the body of Christ don't do it much anymore, but we used to refer to each other as brother, sister, and some traditions went father and mother. But Jesus said, pray our Father. Eleven times in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he uses that phrase, either our Father or your Father. So we are connected. There is a unique relationship between every human being. I used to teach contemporary theology and uh, Usually on the first day of class in the semester, I would ask the students, can you tell me why it's okay to take the life of a chicken, but God does not want us to murder one another? What is up with that? And I rarely ever got the right answer, because the right answer is, The chicken doesn't have the imago Dei or the image of Christ in them. Only human beings have the image of Christ. And when God looks at any human being, male or female, young or old, rich or poor, black or white, any human being, he sees an image of himself. Now when Satan looks at the same image, He sees a picture of his arch enemy. Satan motivates people to harm one another, to betray one another, to abuse one another, to massacre one another. Why? Because he hates God and he hates his image. And the further we move away from God, the further we move away from the reality of his image. There is no human being who does not bear the image of God. And there is no human being whom God does not love. Jesus said it this way, God so loved the church. No, no, no. God so loved The world, the world, and everyone in it, that he gave his only son. So we have a common father. Now, I was speaking along these lines somewhat in a chapel service years ago. And after the chapel, a young lady, one of our co-ed students, came to me. And uh, she made an appointment, came in the office, and she said, I, I have a problem. She said, uh, I cannot get my arms around this concept of a heavenly father. And she said, I, I understand why. She said, the reason I can't is every time I think of a heavenly father, the word father is not a comfortable word in my life. 
My father was abusive. My father was not kind to me or to my brothers and sisters, nor to my mother. He raped me. And he took advantage of me. He did not protect me. He used me. And I can't get my arms around this idea that there's a heavenly father I can trust. I can love. And he loves me. And instead of using me, he gave up his son for me. I can't deal with that. Well, she's not alone. Way back in the Gospels, there is a wonderful question which Philip asks in John 14. What kind of a father do we have? He said, Lord, show us the father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus said, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you so long, anyone who has seen me has seen my Father. That is dynamite. Jesus said, I am the exact replica of your heavenly Father. What he loves, I love. What he has compassion over, I have compassion over. Whom he forgives, I forgive. What he says, I say. We are one. And if you have seen me, you have seen your father. I hadn't thought of it that way when this young coed was talking to me. But if we have a difficult time understanding who God is, We need to put the face of Jesus on him because he is the exact reproduction of the Father. Now, that brings us to some wonderful, wonderful observations about who we are and how we relate to each other. Unfortunately, sometimes we don't see this picture as clearly. This was a critical question which Philip asked. And as Jesus answers it, he tells him in many ways, be careful because the family is not perfect. The church is not perfect. That which is perfect has not come yet. If you're looking for perfection, you will not find it anywhere in the church. You will only find it in Christ. Jesus used a number of illustrations and stories to make this point. One of the most powerful is in Luke 15, where he talks about the prodigal son. The prodigal son had a good father. He had a successful father. And he was... Comfortable going to his father and saying, you know, I don't want to wait until you kick the bucket before I can enjoy some of your wealth. How about sharing the inheritance with me now? Father said, okay, if that's the way you want it. 
And we know what happened. He went and squandered the money, and he ended up living like a, an animal in a pig's pen. And the telling part of that story is he said, if I go back to my father, he will receive me. His servants have it better than I would have it now. And what he probably didn't know is that I think every morning his father was scanning the horizon, wondering, where is my son? I wonder what he's done. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have satellite phone connections. They didn't have anything like Pony Express at that time. Took months for news to get back. And one day he sees this image probably bent over. He looks at, as he comes closer, he sees the clothes are disheveled, and he recognizes, this is my son. And he runs to him. He welcomes him. Now, there's another member of the family who's not too pleased with all of this. And it, it, it's quite like, well, think about the disciples as a class for a moment. 12 students. They have the most wise, effective teacher that has ever walked in human flesh. He is the most competent of all teachers. And there were three disciples who blew it. That's a 25% failure rate. Peter blew it big time. Oh, he boasted of the fact that I, <laughs> I can believe some of these other disciples might deny you, but not me. I would never do a thing like that. And then you know the story, cursing, swearing, declaring, I never, ever knew the man. And then, of course, there's Judas. And then there's Doubting Thomas. Well, you know, I saw him raise the dead, and I saw him heal lepers, and I, you know, I saw him do a lot of wonderful things, but I also saw that corpse they took off the cross. No way. No. You didn't see him. You thought you saw a resurrected Lord. You didn't see him. Now, what does Jesus do with Peter? He restores him. Very interesting that the angel says to the ladies who come to the tomb on resurrection morning, and they say, he's not here. Go tell his disciples and Peter. Why? And Peter. Because Peter had already separated himself from the crowd. I, I, he said, I've blown it. I don't belong with them. Church ought to be the most forgiving organization in the world. And when you blow it, this is where you come to get forgiveness and get restored. So what does Jesus do? He restores Peter. And then there's a board meeting on the day of Pentecost, less than two months after the resurrection, and the crowds are asking, what is going on? And, and the search committee is looking for a speaker. 
Are you with me? Somebody says, well, um, what about Peter? Peter, less than two months ago, he's swearing and cursing and saying he doesn't know the Lord. And you want him to stand up and be the representation and preach the inaugural sermon of the New Testament church? You talk about restoration. You talk about reinstatement. You talk about forgiveness. Take a look at that picture. The same father. We are brothers and sisters. And we relate to each other in a forgiving and a loving way. What about Thomas? Jesus doesn't come to him and say, you're a failure. You're a mess. I'm so sick and tired of your kind. No, he says, Thomas, look, let's put it this way. See these scars? See this wound? I am, I'm the real Jesus. And I believe that if Judas had come to the Lord and said, I blew it, oh, I am so sorry, please forgive me, he would have been restored. Jesus didn't turn his back on Judas, Judas turned his back on the Lord. He walked out on him. So there are these stories. They tell us that the church is not perfect. There's another story in the church, in the scriptures. I, I can't hardly visualize this. Jesus is walking into the temple in John 8. There's a group of men there. They've got a woman in, kind of in the middle of a circle. And they're screaming at her. And they're making all kinds of sarcastic comments about her. And they're holding rocks in their hands night before she was caught in the act of adultery. We don't know where the man was. I don't think she committed adultery by herself. But they've got her. And Jesus walks in there and, and now they're saying, oh, this is a great teacher. She was found in an act of adultery. What do you think we ought to do with her? The law says she should be stoned. I think already they recognized that Jesus was a forgiver. And he looked at them and he said, well, you want to stone her? I suggest that he that is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And then the text says he started to write on the ground. Now this is not, this is not theology, it's not Bible, it's Wayne Grace. I think Jesus probably wrote at the feet of every man the name of the woman he was last with. Because they suddenly are standing there and say, oops, guess it's not me. And then they go around the circle, everyone leaves. And now it's just Jesus and this woman. And he says to her, where are your accusers? She says, I have none. He says, well, I'm not going to become one. 
you go and sin no more. This is not a perfect body. People make mistakes. Sometimes there are people in this family who hurt so much they cannot even cry out for help. There was a a procession, Jesus with his disciples is on the way to the city of Nain. And as they're entering the city, there's a a funeral procession going out of the city. And there's a, a weeping, grieving mother. It's her second time to the cemetery. She'd been there earlier to bury her husband. Now her son, her only son, gone. In this culture, this was devastating. For her, she'd have been a beggar. Jesus was not asked. We're not told how old the son was. We're not told that he did anything great. We're not told that she had done anything great. Jesus saw her pain. And he walks up to her and takes the initiative and he lays his hand on that funeral bier and he says, son, arise. There are people all around us in great pain. Sometimes they walk through the doors of this church and they, they hurt so much they can't even express it. But if you see it on their face, if they're a little short with their hello, Maybe it's time to put an arm around one of them and say, you're having a rough time, aren't you? I just want you to know we love you. And if there's something I could pray with you about, I'd love to do it. One of the greatest illustrations of this point was one that the disciples never really got too well It's in Matthew 19. Jesus is there with a crowd of mothers, and they've brought their children, and he is blessing them. And and mothers are kind of jostling around, you know, here, will you you pray for Tommy? Will you pray for Susan here? Will you lay your hands on Nancy? And the disciples, they didn't get it at all. They said, this is, this is ridiculous. These children are not important. Jesus is wasting his time. They're wasting his time. They don't have a vote. They don't carry a ballot. They don't have a bank account. They have no influence. Why would Jesus be interested in a child? Why would the church be interested in a child? One of the churches I was an interim pastor of had had gone through some uh, pretty pretty tough times. They built a $28 million campus, and they owed $13.5 million on it, plus $750,000 in late fees and penalties because they were a year behind in their mortgage, and they're going to be foreclosed in six weeks. Thousand people walked out of the congregation. And uh, you kind of ask yourself, how are you going to rebuild a church like this? Well, God really 
began to bless that church. And uh, we were having a baptismal service on a Sunday morning. Staff came to me and they said, Pastor, I don't know what we're going to do, but we've got 65 people who want to be baptized. If we took one minute per person, that's more time than we have for the whole service. I said, yep. Well, let's get three baptismal tanks. We had one, so we got two portable ones. We brought them in. We had a children's tank. Youth pa children's pastor was taking care of that. We had a teen tank, and the youth pastor was baptizing there. We had an adult tank, and they were baptizing. And I, I encourage families to come and get, gather around. And I tell parents, if you want to baptize your child or your, your son, you do it. There's nothing more powerful than a father or a mother baptizing a child. And so I saw this one family over here, and, and I looked at it, and there's a little girl. She's about this high. She's kind of peering over the top of the baptismal tank. And there's a mother and a father and two siblings there. And the mother asked for the microphone. And the children's pastor hands it to her. And she said, I just want to tell her a word. She said, six months ago, my daughter started coming to Sunday school here. None of us were in church. And she brought all of us to church. We're all part of this church now. And we've all come to faith. And she led us, the youngest in the family. I thought to myself, wow, what an illustration. Suffer the children to come unto me and forbid them not. Jesus said something very powerful to his disciples. He said, for they are now the kingdom of God. He didn't say someday they will be. Someday they will belong to the church. No, he said now they are. I love the story of the feeding of the 5,000. If children weren't important, what would have happened if that kid hadn't shown up that day? <laughs> and then there's Jairus. He comes to the Lord and says, I know it's a long ways from here. My daughter is near death. Could you possibly come pray for her? And Jesus changes direction, heads toward Jairus' house. In the middle of the trip, some lady reaches out and touches the Lord, falls down, catches the hem of his garment, and Jesus stops and says, who touched me? You can see Jairus. What? I got a dying daughter and you're asking who touched you? What's that about? Jesus is never in a hurry. He's always got time for an interruption. A lot of the opportunities we have for ministry are not by appointment. They're by interruption. Educators tell us that children learn more from observation than they do any other way. And what Jesus was saying, I do not want these children to observe that they are unimportant. They are important and they are loved and we are going to take care of them. 
Now, I've spent 35 years in Christian higher education, and I have always believed that Christian education is more important than public education. Not any better, but it's more important. And the facilities and the care and the attention we give a child in church is absolutely vital that they not see something that's second class to what they get in public schools. Because little kids like that five and six and seven-year-old can lead a whole family to the Lord. So Jesus says this is not a perfect family, but no one in the family is unimportant. There are no throwaways in the kingdom of God. I want to close with a picture from John chapter 11 that's not on the screen. I'm sorry for that. It's a story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And you know it well, probably. Dead three days in a tomb. Jesus stands there and says, move the stone away. And then he calls And he says, Lazarus, come forth. I love the theologian who said, if if Jesus is addressing the realms of the dead, he's very specific as to who he's calling forth. If he had just said, come forth, there'd have been a general resurrection. Someday, someday. But right now, Lazarus, you come forth. And Lazarus, bound hand and foot, wrapped up in grave clothes like gauze bands wrapped around him. He comes out. I don't know how he does that, but if you can put breath in a corpse that's three days old, you can get it out, put it in public. And then Jesus says to the disciples, unwrap him. What's that about? If you can get them out of the tomb all the way out here, can't you get them out of the grave clothes? And I think what Jesus is saying, I want you to take the death clothes, take the jacket of death off him. And I want you to understand that I can heal, I can raise from the dead, I can heal the soul. Don't you look at people with their old uniform. Get rid of that old jacket. I want you to see them as a new person. Sometimes people come to faith and they have to fight for friends in the church because we know so much about them. I think what Jesus is saying, take the old jacket off. Let them wear a new robe. Be healthy, be well. What do we build a church on? We build it on family. We are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. So much so that the apostle says, we are not only brothers and sisters, but we are heirs. Joint heirs with Christ. Everything that the Heavenly Father has in store for a son who has never betrayed him, never failed to keep his word, never failed to be totally obedient, everything he would give to him, he will also give to you 
because you're a joint heir and you're in a relationship with us. We are part of something that is so powerful. Sometimes I think uh, we, we let our culture and our, our, our legal system influence our understanding of sin because we have felonies that are the worst. We have misdemeanors that are kind of in the middle and we have infractions. You go to state penitentiary for a felon. You go to the county jail for a, a misdemeanor and you pay a fine for an infraction. Now God's kingdom is not organized that way. He's not big sins and little sins. There's not heinous crimes and then there's little white lies. No. The word says if you've broken any part of this law, you're guilty of the whole thing. So there's no opportunity for me to boast about how the fact that I've never done anything like that. God's word says, no, you're just as guilty because you missed the mark too. So we embrace one another. We forgive one another. We pay attention to children. We reach out to the lost. We go out to the highways and the byways and we compel them to come. Built on this. And the most important of it all is that the face of Jesus is the face of the Father. And if we lift up Christ, he will draw all people unto himself. Our Father, we thank you for this illustration this morning from your word of how connected we are to each other and how much you do love us. I pray that you will continue to bless this church with such a rich history and prosper it, and may it be a beacon, continuing to be a beacon in this community for your name's sake. And everybody said, Amen.